And if you have a Bible, we're going to open up to Genesis chapter 1 tonight. We'll end up in 1 Corinthians 6, and you'll find out pretty quickly. This is one of those um, big, uh, big idea messages. Um, I uh, um, spend a lot of time, maybe you never spend too much time on a message, but uh, this, this, uh, this required a lot of work, and, and I didn't write the Bible. I'm just called to preach it. So um, when uh, uh, you open to, conver- open to chapters like 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, and you're staring at some stuff that really is heavy and deep and requires a whole lot of, uh, uh, of context to get the message out, you just got to do the work. So uh, uh, thankfully, you get to sit back and, and listen and engage with the scriptures and just pray for me as uh, I, uh, wearing one of these requires uh, that uh, we handle and uh, handle and navigate the heavy topic sometimes. So um, the reason why we're going to have one of these big idea um, uh, front to back uh, Bible conversations around the topic of sexuality uh, and morality is because we're reading and studying 1 Corinthians, and it cannot be overstated how sexually perverse, which is twisted and warped and broken, uh, to, 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 to put it bluntly, uh, it cannot be overstated how sexually perverse the first century world was. You may have heard and may have observed how sexually perverse the world is today, uh, and, and it is. It cannot be overstated how sexually perverse the first century world, though, was. Are we going to compare? No. Are we going to say, well, this is bad and that's worse? No. But we're just going to talk about how bad it was in the first century. And it might remind you a little bit of the 21st century. Um, Specifically, the first century Roman Empire was knee-deep, waist-deep, torso-deep in the mire when it came to sexual Immorality. It also, uh, it's really difficult for us to understand the headspace of many of the citizens that Paul would have been writing to in the first century Rome, um, especially the pagans, people that had just come to Christ or that were not yet come to Christ. It's really hard for us to understand how they would have been hearing the word and how they would have been perceiving the word and how they would have understood the world uh, because we, as flawed as our world is, we still live in a world that is so influenced by Christianity and has been so transformed by Christianity, even though there's still a lot of stuff that goes on and things that have come into the world that we thought would never happen, we still see through the lens of Christianity and we still are impacted by the power of Christianity, how it has held us back from being farther in sin and has pulled us out of sin in so many ways. But in the first century Roman Empire, there was no Christianity as it is today and and it was just becoming aware of Christianity. So it was far, far, far from their hearts as to what God's perfect will was or as to what God's way was all about. So if you were to go back 2,000 years uh, and before that even, things were so different than they are right now. Uh, and perhaps the most striking thing uh, that you would have noticed if, you would have, if we were to walk back through time into the first century world and, and before, um, there, it would be that there is a lack of a moral compass. The reason why you're, you are so burdened when you see how things are, how perverse the world is around us is because you, I'm assuming you do, and I believe that most of you do, and all of you do, the reason why you are so appalled at some of the perversion in the world today and some of the perversion that we read about through history is because you have a moral compass. We have a moral compass. 
as guided by or as determined by God and his word. We are guided by a moral compass. But the first century world, they didn't know what a moral compass was. They didn't know what morals were. It was all, it was anything goes when it came to what they chose to do with their bodies. Uh, Now, in order for us to fully understand the angle that Paul begins teaching about morality and sexuality, I think it's necessary that we pull back Uh, with an aerial view of the landscape of the world that was. Uh, And and to do that, we've got to have a broad conversation about sexuality and morality as defined by and observed within the scriptures. And some of you are thinking, it's about time, Justin. I've been waiting for this sermon. Some of you are going to be thinking, well, I didn't think you were going to do that sermon. Just don't walk out regardless of of what you think and what I say that maybe doesn't all register with you completely at 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 the start of it. Try to absorb what God's word is telling you. I promise you I'm not bringing anything to the table that isn't rooted in God's word. You, you may not agree with my interpretation of everything, but I promise you this. I'm going to show you what God's word says so that then you, through the spirit, uh, can choose to do with it what you, uh, what, what you will. But um, as usual, the best place to start in the, is the book of Genesis. Now, the reason why the book of Genesis is the best place to start is uh, Genesis doesn't just tell us how the world came to be. Genesis also shows us the origin of the way the world was supposed to be and what caused the world to be not as it was meant to be. And it really, we really see the seeds for why the world is so fallen and why the world lost touch with God's perfect design. And, and, and so many things that Genesis brings to the table are later touched on by Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, and, and we see how he allows us to get back to where God wanted us to be. Um, now, let me say this. We're going to talk about some things tonight that are going to make us feel good about ourselves, and we're going to talk about some things that are going to make us feel not so good about ourselves. Uh, we're going to talk about some things that make us feel justified against the world and some things that make us feel as condemned as the world, and maybe not us personally, but people that we know in our families, people that we love, people that we, you know, that we interact with. Um, it's going to be a roller coaster of a conversation, but let me say this again. You may agree with some things we talk about. You may disagree with some things that we talk about, but, but the only way any of us are ever going to obtain the fullness of God's grace we must be honest about our own sinfulness and be humble before God's goodness. So I can promise you two things. Number one, we are sinners. I know that's not what you want to hear, but that's what we need to hear. And remember last week I talked about this, that your sin does not keep me from God and my sin does not keep you from God. My sin keeps me from God and your sin keeps you from God. So while it's easy to talk about other people's sin, what matters in eternity is my sin. What matters in eternity is your sin when it comes to our own eternal standing. Uh, so I must be honest about my sin. But the other thing that, that, is, that is true is that God is good and that God's mercy endures forever. And yes, our sin is great, but his grace is greater. Yes, our our, our iniquity is full, but his mercy runs over. So that's good news tonight, isn't it? Um, Now, one minute you may be saying amen, and the other minute you may be saying anathema, which is Greek for let it be silenced. Uh, Amen in Greek means let it be said again, uh, or let it be... um, punctuated or let it be exclaimed. Uh, Anathema uh, is let it be cursed or let it be silent. So one minute you may be saying amen. The other minute you may be saying anathema, right? Uh, Don't make a habit of saying that. Say amen all you want to, but if you want to say anathema, just don't say it out loud. Just say it in your your own heart, right? Uh, Or hopefully you don't do that either. Um, But uh, I promise you, 
I think by the end of our time tonight, um, we will end up with three things. A greater clarity for God's way, a greater appreciation for God's grace, and a better preparedness to preach to a lost world. That's what we need, right? We need greater clarity, we need greater appreciation, and we need a better preparedness. So in the beginning, we know that God makes it pretty clear what his design for humanity is and what his plan for sexuality is because core to humanity, core to our design is our sexuality, is our, um, our, our sexual design. Now, Genesis chapter one, we get it right out of the gate. Genesis chapter one, verse 26 through 28. This is what God's word says about how God designed humanity. And, and you all know this, you all agree with this, uh, but we need to start with a foundation. So Genesis 1.26 says, God said, let us, and that's the Trinity. It's God talking Father, Son, and Spirit, Father, Word, and Spirit. Let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the flesh of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over the creeping things that crawls on the earth. So this is God saying that at the center of creation is going to be this species called humans. Man uh, in the image of God, not just because we look like God, but because we share something that God possesses, some design, some uh, a capacity for choice and capacity for, uh, uh, for, for, for living a life that will ultimately glorify God. We are made in his image, and in verse 27 clarifies it or explains it further. So God created man in his own image, and, and that's to be interpreted humanity because he explains what humanity is or what humanity includes. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So God makes humans, God makes mankind, and mankind includes man and woman, male and female. In verse 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So, so, when God made people, and, and again, this isn't, you know, this isn't middle school, so we don't have to snicker, you don't, you're not going to snicker, because if you bring this up in, you know, around children, people kind of joke, but people kind of think, well, I don't know if we can talk about that in church, but when God made people, when God made man and God made woman, core to that design is our sexuality, right? Because there in the next verse, he says, hey, part of your existence is to spread my image, and how do you spread the image of God? How do people multiply? Well, we know how that works, right? It's not from a stork, or it's not from uh, uh, from some uh, way fairy tales might explain it. It's through, uh, the, you know, a man and woman um, coming together. Now, God says, be fruitful and multiply. So core to God's design for humanity is marriage, is this unit, family unit, where man and woman come together and uh, spread uh, or add to the world and bring more images of God into the world. And in chapter two, we get more of a, of a, close-up explanation of how this all came about because we find out that God made the man first and then said, hey, he needs a partner. Chapter 2, verse number 18. And the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him, equal to him. And out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air, brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Whatever Adam called every living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to cattle, birds of the air, beasts of the field. But to Adam, for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And of course there wasn't. 
And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. So he didn't take a bone from his head or a bone from his foot. He took a bone from his center, a bone from his side. And from that bone, verse 22, then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. She was taken out of Man, and therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They were both naked, and the man and his wife, they were not ashamed. So God gave Adam an equal partner, uh, designed uniquely, man and woman, different in their makeup, yet complete together. The image of God completed when the two come together and become one. So you, you could almost... Uh, explain God's design for marriage and God's design for this relationship to be a submission competition, that they would be uh, submitting to one another. And that's what Ephesians chapter 5 teaches, that we are to submit to one another. And then Paul explains, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, lay down your lives for your wives. So it's this submission competition. We submit to God and we submit to each other. And that is how the world works and exists in harmony. But it wasn't harmonious for long, was it? Uh, because in Genesis 3, Satan enters the picture and usurps the communication between Adam and Eve. Uh, he gets in between their commitment to each other and their commitment to God, and that's where things fall apart. So God confronts them, pronounces the terms and conditions of the fall that they welcomed on and unleashed upon the world and human humanity that would come through them. And there's one sentence in the declaration that previews a world of hurt to come upon God's design for marriage, God's design for relationships, God's design for how men and women would interact with each other. And I want you to look at chapter 3, verse 16. And when God is talking to Eve and he says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow in your conception uh, regarding the, the childbirth, he, he says this at the end of verse 16 that is very important. Now, he is not saying, this is not a commandment. This is God telling Eve, this is the fallout of your and Adam's fractured relationship. This is the fallout of, between man and woman as a result of sin, as a result of the fall. He says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, we often have been taught to read that as in, well, that's just God telling Eve to love her husband. And that's telling Eve that he's going to rule over her. The real message there, the real word there is this, that Eve, you're going to want to be in charge and he's going to want to be in charge. And you two are going to look at each other not as equals or not as someone you're supposed to submit to and love and, 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 and nurture. You're going to look at each other as rivals, so no longer is there this harmonious completion ideal when man and woman come together, but there's this tension that women will look at men as something that is, that's someone that is not for them or good for them, and there's this fractured relationship in the marriage, in the home, and men will say that they're in charge and you must obey me. There's this tension, there's this brokenness in the relationships. Now, not just between man and woman in a marital situation, but between men and women in a humanity uh, aspect of all humanity, that there's this tension between men and women, this tension between all of humans and one another. Now, 
they'd already made it known they wanted to be like gods. Remember back in, that was when Satan said, hey, that's not what God said. And he said, hey, the reason why God doesn't want you to eat the fruit is because he's afraid you'll become like him. And what was their, what was Eve, what was her desire? I want that. I want to be like God. Adam was right right there, right? I want to be like God. Eve's going to be like God. I want to be like God. She's not going to be more like God than me. I want to be more like God than she is like God so I can be number one. There was this, this tension, right? As they usurped God's place in their life. So when they rebelled against God, they refused to submit to God, and God foresees a world where they would refuse to submit to each other and refuse to submit to his design for them. Now, why am I making a big deal out of this? It's because from there, God's design for manhood and womanhood unravels and when, you, when God's design for men and women unravels, sexuality, because we're, it's so core to who we are, sexuality strays from God's intent. Now, you can read throughout the book of Genesis, and there are multiple tent poles throughout the book where you see the fracture, specifically in homes, specifically within marriages and within relationships, And throughout Genesis, there are major stories that involve uh, this breakdown in relationships and that really highlight how the fall was most affecting and was sending its its, 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 tentacles out to the world by way of broken homes. There are several examples of unfaithfulness throughout the book of Genesis. You, You know the story of Abraham, how he undermines uh, his relationship with Sarah, he commits adultery against her, right? You know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, how there are a city where people are, uh, men are taking other men and are raping other men, and there's this rampant homosexuality. You know the story of Lot having uh, sex with his daughters. There's I- incest uh, going on. And we also know that almost every man in Genesis has multiple wives. When was that God's plan? It was never God's plan, right? So you read Genesis, and the, the, the heroes of the story, the stars of the story, are committing adultery. There are people who are given to homosexuality. There are polygamists. There's incest and there's even broken marriages. There's divorce and that was never part of God's plan. All of these are examples of the breakdown in God's design for sexuality and relationships. Now, if you read throughout the Old Testament, you can see that God is trying to restore the world to his, ident- his identic, identic plan, his ideal plan through a small group, through Abraham's family, and after that Israel as they came from Abraham. The rest of the world goes whole hog into immorality and perversion. And that's why in the law, specifically Leviticus, if you've ever read through Leviticus, you know there are some chapters that it's, the whole chapter is about sexuality and it's some weird stuff if you read the whole stuff, whole chapter. Leviticus 18, Leviticus 21. Uh, Leviticus says that anybody, Leviticus condemns, and this is really hard to hear, but I want you to hear it clearly, and, and I promise you there's hope. Leviticus basically says that anyone is guilty who has been the perpetrator or the victim of some of these categories, all of these categories. Uh, Leviticus even talks about gender dysphoria or where we understand transgenderism from. All of these categories are condemned by God. Leviticus has several chapters where if you committed adultery, where, where if you were the victim of adultery, man with woman, woman with woman, man with man, whether it was a joint decision or one-sided decision, even if you were assaulted, both parties are condemned. I know what you're thinking. That's not fair. But both parties 
are condemned. You know why Leviticus condemns both sides? Those that are the violators and those that are the victims? Because it's a matter of purity. About a loss of purity. And there's no way to reclaim it. And you know what Leviticus' goal is? It's to make us all realize we need a supernatural redemption. Now, that's not fair. You think, well, that's not fair. I mean, if someone, someone who is the, the perpetrator, they, they, they should be condemned, but someone who's a victim of it? That's not fair. But the point of Leviticus is not fairness. Fairness went out the window when Adam and Eve fell in the garden. The point is not fairness. It's about truth. And the law reveals our impurity. The law reveals that all of us need a supernatural redemption. The, the law says that if we've partaken in or suffered from the perversion of sexual immorality, we are broken people who need redemption. You see the point of it, right? That it's trying to convince us that our sexuality is so tied to our humanity that it cannot be separated. And that if we've suffered in any of these categories, if we've been the one who partook in willfully or we suffered from unwillfully, we still lose something in the process, right? We still are, are, are impacted by it and we're damaged by it. And again, I don't, not to get too graphic, but there are things that you'll forget that happened when you were younger, but there are some things you'll never forget if they are in these categories because they violate your very soul, right? That's how vulnerable we are when it comes to sexuality and when it comes to immorality. So Leviticus says, if we have... If Leviticus says violators or victims, it should be or victims of adultery, homosexuality, gender dysphoria, which is people changing their genders or being with the wrong gender, polygamy, incest, divorce, all have been impacted by the breakdown of God's plan and our wounded souls need healing. So what is God's reasoning for saying this in Leviticus? You can read it. Again, I'm not making this up. This is Leviticus word for word. Our souls are wounded. Because your sexuality is core to your design as a creature made in the image of God. Now, I know this is touchy because everyone is in here has been affected by one or more of these categories, or you have kids or family that have been affected by or part of these categories, which reveals that we are all broken and wounded people. Our souls are wounded. We must admit it if we're going to get healed from it. Maybe why this subject in church often gets selectively fired up upon, uh, talked about, is because our flesh often focuses on certain categories and not the categories that we need to talk about so that we can get healed. Leviticus says we're all broken in a lot of ways, but there is special attention given to terms of sexuality because we are especially vulnerable in this area because it's so core to who we are. So God set the bar very high for Israel and boy, did they never even come close to meeting the standard. The Old Testament is full of its main characters jumping headlong into sin. There is rampant Divorce, rampant adultery, rampant fornication, rampant incest, polygamy, homosexuality within the house of Israel. The people that God was trying to show the greater standard to, they themselves said, we don't want to do what you tell us to do, God. We're going to do what we want to do. Israel gets further and further away from God, and God points to this core design issue within every one of his people as the reason why they were falling away and he often equates their turning from him as if they were a couple being separated a couple being torn apart then along comes Jesus and he makes it even harder on us because he taught on sexuality and morality with an even more intensity and seemingly less wiggle room 
Now flip over to Matthew chapter five, if you will. And I want you to read these verses. Again, they may, be, they may be hard to hear, but I want you to hear them as Jesus is teaching them about this subject that is so important. Matthew 5, verse 27 through 32, Jesus deals with adultery and he deals with broken marriages. He deals with marriages that are broken. And the reason why he deals with this and in some ways you think, Jesus, that, that, that's just not fair. That's just not, you can't equate one thing to another. But Jesus is trying to get us to understand how vulnerable our souls are and how important this issue is. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 27. You've heard it said of old that, it, that it, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with, it, with her in his heart. So Jesus, you cannot tell me that lusting for someone is as bad or as abominable as doing something with someone that the Old Testament says is sin. Jesus says, well, you can tell me. I can't tell you all you want to, but this is what I'm saying. Because if you play around with sexuality in your mind, you're still damaging. You're still playing with your soul. And it's just as damaging to your soul as if you actually join yourself with somebody that you shouldn't join yourself to. You... If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Cast it from you. It's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. So what's he saying? That, that, that we are just as in danger of condemnation for things that we think about when it comes to sexuality as things that we do with our bodies because that's how vulnerable we are in this area. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Cast it from you for there is more, it's more profitable for you to be that one of your members perished and your whole body be cast into hell. So he can't be any more clear, can he? And, and, and again, I, 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 I address these next two verses with all the grace that I can, but I want you to hear what Jesus says. And, and again, you may say, G J Justin or, or Jesus, that's not fair. But Jesus is not talking about what's fair. He's talking about what's true. Do you see the difference? Because what's true and what's fair are two different things. Because what's true is what pertains to what your soul needs in the healing he's trying to give you. So he talks about something that might, might be very uncomfortable for some people to hear. He says, furthermore, it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, as in marriage is disposable. If you're tired of this, move on. If, you've, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But there's nothing that's going to go with you, that your soul's just going to recover and there's not going to be any baggage. He says, you can't just treat marriage that way. Hey, you might be free to move on, but hey, there's something that you may still need healing from and there's something that you might be underestimating. He says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reasons except sexual immorality causes her to be an adultery. What about him? Jesus says, hey, hey, it doesn't just, it's not just the violator. The victim even suffers. He's not saying I'm condemning the person. He's saying this is the reality of when you break up something that God said should never break up. This is the reality of when you do something with a body that should never be done with a body. That's how fragile we are. That's how fragile you and I are when it comes to sexuality, when it comes of morality. Whoever marries a woman is divorced, commits adultery. He says, hey, this is how fragile we are. Now, this is Jesus' definition of sexual purity. Not to say anyone who falls short is doomed, but to make it clear that most people have already fallen short. What has he talked about in these two passages? He's only addressed heterosexual sin, right? He's only addressed 
broken marriages and, and men or women lusting after each other. He's not even dealing with homosexuality or polygamy or incest. <laughs> Because him addressing what was considered normal relationships caused enough of a stir, he didn't even get to the rest. Now, of course, he condemns those other things, but he only deals with the things that, that I think would have got the most pop. Jesus exposed that most people have, as having become impure through broken marriages, extramarital relationships, or mental promiscuity. What's he doing? He exposes that all of us have crossed a line when it comes to sinful sexual immorality and we need to be aware of that he would not budge from his ideal people try to get jesus to say jesus you don't really mean that do you i mean are you really telling me that somebody who lusts after a woman is as condemned in god's eyes as somebody who cheats on their wife or is gay or is something else are you really saying that jesus because i don't believe that that's not fair that's not right and jesus says i'm absolutely telling you that's the case because you are playing with something that you do not understand the power of and the value of. He will not budge, but here's the good news. Jesus would not budge from his ideal, but he had compassion for a real world with real flaws. That's why and for whom he came. Now flip over to Matthew 19. Matthew 19 Jesus is pressed by the Jewish leaders for having such narrow definitions of sexual purity. One man with one woman for life with very limited exceptions. And Jesus responds to them after they come to him and say, Jesus, you can't possibly be saying that this is the biggest problem in our, our society. I mean, there's a whole lot of other immoral immorality going on out there. Have you looked at what's going on in Rome? Have you looked at what's going on around the world? And you're harping on broken marriages and mental promiscuity? I mean, come on, Jesus. I mean, can't, you know, lay off of us. And, and this is why Jesus is being so serious about this is because they underestimated what they were dealing with and what they were playing with. He says in verse four, chapter 19, when they ask him, hey, are you really serious about this? He says, have you not read what, the, what, he, the, what he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? He says, I want you to know where God started with, a man and woman. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let nobody separate. So this is God's ideal, one man, one woman for life. You can't tear it apart because if you tear it apart, something gets torn up in the process. And of course, there's other things that are far from God's will, but this is really what really unraveled things for the whole world. This is God's perfect plan. If even one of the two in a marriage has ever been joined another to another, things are not as they were meant to be, much less if both have crossed the line. Now, naturally, you can imagine this offended a lot of people. Caused people to say, Jesus, aren't there worse offenders out there? Why are you being so hard on heterosexual married people who have, been, who have skeletons in their closet? Yeah, there's lust in our hearts. Yeah, there's adultery in our past. Yeah, somebody was unfaithful in the past. But aren't there bigger problems in the world, Jesus? And Jesus says, listen, I'm not condemning anybody. He, you know what Jesus was doing? He was preparing his church to have a super high view of sexuality and morality so that the standard would be so clear for the future. Look at what, it, we'll read it in a minute, but this is what Jesus is doing. He's trying to reestablish the moral compass so that people could be healed and recover the true blessing of sexuality in marriage. His audience thought he was taking things to an insane level. 
And listen to how they respond in verse 10. His disciples said, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus, if, if you're saying that, that man, you know, a, a normal heterosexual relationship is that volatile or that potential for sin, you know, or, or if things don't go right, things are, you know, in, in danger. For, for both of them, I, I mean, it's better that people just don't get married. And look at what Jesus says. All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. Some can handle it. Some can't. And he says, hey, there's some that are eunuchs. They, they get their privilege taken away from them. Uh, there are some uh, who choose to be eunuchs or choose to be celibate. Uh, and, but again, he's like, you know, hey, that's, that's a whole other thing. But you can, you can think I'm being extreme or you can think I'm being crazy or you can just read between the lines and hear what I'm saying. I'm trying to restore the moral compass for the world. Was Jesus being insensitive? No. The real issue was our heart's desensitivity to God's pure and moral standard. He was trying to sync our hearts with God's design. Now, flip over to 1 Corinthians and we'll wrap this up. Because I want us to understand what God is trying to say and what Jesus is trying to say. The church is spreading beyond Judea, beyond Israel, and is dealing with Gentiles on a normal basis. Whereas the Jews sort of kind of had a, a moral compass, the Gentiles had no moral compass at all. The Gentiles had no standard. As the gospel was spreading, many, even most of the people it was reaching, were involved in very morally compromised lifestyles. Now follow me here closely because I don't want anyone to mishear what I'm about to say. Look at 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 through 11 and hear the Apostle Paul talk to some of the church members of Corinth. Now hear all these verses together, it's important. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, that's people who have sex outside of marriage or before marriage, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, people who cheat on their spouse, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And you can also translate, the, the word homosexual there can also be translated those who, um, those who take on another gender. So it can apply to gender dysphoria or transgender people. But look at verse 11. Such were some of you. But you were washed and you've been sanctified and you've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the spirit of our God. Paul is talking to people who were once deeply categorized and defined by their simple lifestyles, fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals, transgender people. And now, after they've come to Christ, they are no longer defined by their sin, but rather by and in their Savior. But still, there are many people in the church, his wife's writing this, who struggled with sexual sins because they had not yet adopted their new moral standard. They didn't know it yet. They were lost. They came to Jesus. He forgave them of their sins, but they were still trying to figure it all out because they didn't have the Bible. They didn't have the Old Testament. Because look at verse 12. Paul says he's talking to them and he's really quoting something they would say. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. He's talking about how, hey, grace has saved us, but Paul is saying to them, hey, you might be free by God's grace to live as you need to live or live as you want to live, but you need to be aware that God has given you a new standard. He's forgiven you of your sin, but he's freed you of your sin. 
in verse 13. Food for the stomach, stomach for the food, but God will destroy both in them. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised up the, the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So Paul is talking to, a, to the Corinthian community like their Roman world, deeply perverse and immoral, but they had no moral compass. And there was polygamy, there was incest, there was fornication, there was prostitution, there was adultery all around them. And in some cases, still in their church community. A little information about the Roman world. Women were treated as sexual objects. Men were free to do whatever they wanted to do with whomever they wanted to do. And in the early Roman world, if you were a man, if you wanted a woman for sexual reasons, you could take her. If you wanted another man for sexual reasons, you could take him. If you wanted a child for sexual reasons, you could take it. And most of those men exercised all their options. It was a messed up, twisted world. And yet the gospel was disrupting that darkness and shining a bright light and people were coming to Christ. People were being transformed. But it wasn't always instantaneous in these people's lives. That's why Paul says to them, the body is not for sexual immorality. And look at verse 15. Do you not know? Because they didn't know that your bodies aren't members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Because men were still going to prostitutes because they were on every corner. He says, certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For two, he says, shall become one flesh. Paul's saying, do you not know the moral standard that it's one man and one woman? And if it's anything other than that, it's damaging your soul? Well, Paul, we never heard of that. We never knew that sexuality was anything more than anything beyond physical. We thought it was just two bodies coming together and going on their own, going about their days. Paul says, no. When a body comes together with another body... It is being joined in a spiritual way. And there's only one way that that is good for you. And if it's anything beyond that one way, then you are damaging your soul and you are potentially risking your purity and your connection to God forever. Verse 18, flee sexual morality. Every sin that a man does outside the body is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. So see how Paul is explaining that sexual sin is deeper than other sin? It, it's more damaging. And, and now do you see why Jesus was not going to budge when it came to what God's design for, for, for marriage was? He's not condemning people that have been through things that, that, that are normal and that are obviously that take place he's just saying I'm not going to budge from my, my standard because I want you to know this is God's plan and it's never it was never supposed to be the way it fell out to be what does this tell us Christians were still committing sexual sins because they didn't know what sexual purity was he says in verse 19 do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God that you are not your own you were bought with a price they didn't know that Paul was telling them that. Listen, why do you think the New Testament goes out of its way to emphasize that pastors and church leaders must be a man with one wife? Because there were so many men with more than one wife. The answer wasn't to tell those men to turn those women loose and let them be suffered by the world around them. It was, was going to take generations to phase all that mess out. And eventually, after 300 years, the church changed the world. 
Prostitution and polygamy were outlawed. Divorce rates dropped. In dysphoria, homosexuality and, and transgenderism, it faded away. Why do you think the New Testament is so clear that church leaders were to model this new and pure sexual moral way for their followers? Because so many had it so wrong. Why do you think Paul was so hands-on appointing pastors and deacons, setting them in place and telling churches, this is your guy? Because there weren't many options. The churches were full of people who were messed up, yet they were just coming to Jesus and they were beginning to change. As we see with Corinth, there were people from all perverse lifestyles, people many times divorced, adulterers, fornicators, gay, lesbian, polygamists, transgenders, incest. It was all over the place. And God was using the church to recenter the world one person at a time, one family at a time. So Paul has to start at ground zero with them. And it turns out that is a pretty good place to start because they had no Old Testament foundation and they never really understood what the Bible said about sexuality. Now, hopefully tonight has helped you understand what the Bible has said about sexuality. And it's gonna prepare us for the next part of this message as Paul begins to apply that moral compass for the church. And his goal is, his goal is, and what he's gonna teach us, that our moral compass must be set by the one who made us, the one who designed our bodies and wired our sexuality for his will. And we'll close on these couple points. You know what Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 6? That every human is gonna be tempted by an alternative lifestyle for their body when it comes to sexual, sexuality and morals. Fornication, mentally or physically. Marriages break up, that happens. We live in a fallen world. People would rebel against God's design and embrace lifestyles of homosexuality, transgenderism, and so many other things that we never even imagined being an option. Christ saves us and shows us that there is one plan for our lives as men are destined to be with one other woman, as women are destined to be with one other man. But I want you to hear this tonight as we close. This passage offers us tremendous hope for every one of us who have been broken as either violators or victims of sexual perversions. Because verse 11 says, such were some of you you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. You're no longer defined by those past decisions you made or decisions someone made for you. You are justified by what Jesus did for you and by who he's made you. But you know what Paul's goal for the church with all this is? That we understand the world around us is not gonna get this right on their own. So in chapter seven that we'll pick up with next week, He's gonna spend focusing all of his attention not on condemning homosexuality, transgenderism, polygamy, incest, adultery, divorce, or fornicators. He's gonna spend the next chapter teaching the church how to shine the brightest into a dark world. Because Paul believed the way to start a sexual revolution was by promoting a healthy marriage and encouraging single people to walk in integrity and purity. Paul believed that rather than preaching against every perverse sexual ethic outside the church, he chose to preach for the one and only ethic as designed by God.
Are there some things that are messed up in our world? Absolutely. Are there people going to hell because of their lost lifestyles? Absolutely. But they're not going to hell because of the sin they commit. They're going to hell because they don't know Jesus. And you know why Jesus held you and I to a high standard? Because he wants us to model to the world what it means to be in Christ and what that difference that can make in our lives. And he wants us to be so unique and defined by him and his will that the world sees us and says something's different about them. They've got a past. They've not been perfect. They've suffered. They've been violated. They've went through things. But they stand out. Because something about their soul says they've been healed. Something about their soul says they've been purified. Something about the way they walk says they've been saved. Is there a world that's going to hell? Absolutely. But it's because they don't know Jesus. And Paul looks at me and he looks at you and he says, men, women, divorced, remarried, widowed, single, newly married, long time married. He says, it's up to y'all to show God, the show the world the standard that God designed for the world. And if we take this serious, maybe the world will pay attention. But if we wash our hands of our responsibility and we point the finger, what's that gonna help? We've been called to shine, we've been called to be bright and we who have been bought by Christ must live up to the standard God has put over us. I tell you all this, read ahead chapter seven. Because chapter seven is gonna look at us and say, hey, husband, wife, single person, divorced person, remarried person, widowed person, how are you leveraging your position and your purity and your integrity to show the world how you understand sexuality, how you understand relationships and how that should be the way they see it? We'll get to that next week. I appreciate y'all being here tonight. I know this is a both feet diving into the a very deep and complicated conversation, but I thought we needed to start from the top and go all the way to where Paul introduces this subject to his audience, and we'll see what God te teaches us in the very next passage. Thank you all for being here tonight. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being our standard. Thank you for setting the bar high, and thank you for not budging. Thank you for not allowing us to bring your standard down. Because God, we know that we have all fallen short. We have all, in some ways, made the decisions. In some ways, we've been victims and it wasn't our fault. But we realize that we need you, Jesus, to purify us and heal us so that we might communicate to a world that is deeply twisted and warped so that they might see us as people who are full of integrity and full of purity, who have healthy relationships and walk as Jesus would have them walk. We may not get anybody's attention, but Jesus says, you've got God's attention and we are held to this standard as he designed it in the beginning. So Lord, give us the strength to live up to your standard and to shine a light into a world that is so dark yet can still be saved by the power of Jesus. We ask this in his name, amen.